Stewards and handmaidens, red priestesses and secret Targaryens, and welcome to another Still Smug Book Talk. As ever, it's your valorous knight, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, vanquisher of shadow demons and lord of Castle Stirling. Today, we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 3, The Queen's Justice, from a book reader's perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries that the book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to spin the knob. That being said, show watchers of a more wild-eyed and information-hungry nature who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to, and maybe you guys can even gain some cool insight or context to the show based on the book information. Spoilers in five. Four, three, two, one. Clocking in at 63 minutes, The Queen's Justice was the longest episode this season so far, and it was a joy to experience. For 21 years since George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones was released, readers have been wondering how Gurm, the master of Weaver of Tales, would manage to steer John and Danny, two characters who started off on opposite ends of planet Os, in two seemingly unrelated storylines into the same plot and location, and it's finally happened, if on screen rather than on page. Things are really starting to go down on Game of Thrones, and I'm really loving the seventh season thus far. Our first book crossover is Tyrion's method of infiltrating Casterly Rock, which had echoes of the method allegedly used by the only other person to ever take Casterly Rock. That person, of course, is the legendary Lan the Clever, founder of House Lannister. Lan, Lannister, you get it. So for those who didn't know this, Casterly Rock, before being occupied by the Lannisters, was owned by House Casterly. The World of Ice and Fire reads, Though never kings, the Casterlys became the richest lords in all of Westeros and the greatest power in the Westerlands, and remained so for hundreds of years. By then, the Dawn Age had given way to the Age of Heroes. That was when the golden-haired rogue called Lan the Clever appeared from out of the east. Some say he was an Andal adventurer from across the narrow sea, though this was millennia before the coming of the Andals to Westeros. Regardless of his origins, the tales agree that somehow Lan the Clever winkled the Casterlies out of their rock and took it for his own. The precise method by which he accomplished this remains a matter of conjecture. In the most common version of the tale, Lan discovered a secret way inside the rock, a cleft so narrow that he had to strip off his clothes and coat himself with butter in order to squeeze through. <laughs> Once inside, however, he began to work his mischief, whispering threats in the ears of sleeping Casterlies, howling from the darkness like a demon, stealing treasures from one brother to plant in the bedchamber of another, rigging sundry snares and deadfalls. By such methods, he set the Casterlies at odds with one another and convinced them that the rock was haunted by some fell creature that would never let them live in peace. Lan the Clever supposedly lived to the age of 312 and sired a hundred bold sons and a hundred lissom daughters, all of fair face, clean of limb, and blessed with hair, quote, as golden as the sun, unquote. But such tales aside, the histories suggest that the early Lannisters were fertile as well as fair, 
for many names began to appear in the Chronicles, and with a, within a few generations, Land's descendants had grown so numerous that even Casterly Rock could not contain all of them. Rather than tunnel out new passages in the stone, some sons and daughters from lesser branches of the house left to make their homes in a village a scant mile away. The land was fertile, the sea teemed with fish, and the site they had chosen had an excellent natural harbor. Soon enough, the village grew into a town, then a city, Lannisport. So, the way that Tyrion snuck into the rock with the Unsullied through his secret little passage in a cleft in the rock, which he had engineered during his time as a master of drains and sewers, <laughs> perfectly mirrors the way that Lan the Clever allegedly infiltrated the rock, way back in the day at the founding of House Lannister. Our next book crossover is Cersei and her parallels to the Mad King Ares II. We saw Cersei this week forcing family members to watch each other die, just as the Mad King did. In Cersei's case, she had Alaria and Tyene chained up in the black cells and poisoned Tyene, forcing Alaria to watch her die and then rot away. In the Mad King's case, he had Brandon Stark captive after he rode south to challenge Rhaegar to free Lyanna. And then he called Rickard Stark to come down to the south to basically answer for his son's crimes. Rickard demanded a trial by combat. Ares chose fire to be his champion. He's basically strung up Rickard and set a fire beneath him and roasted him alive in his metal armor. Put Brandon Stark's sword just out of reach, hooked him up to a device he, he obtained from Mir, which strangled Brandon to death as he struggled to reach the sword. So there's one clear parallel between Cersei and the Mad King. The next is Cersei's sexual arousal after murdering Tyene. After her poisonous kiss, we then see Cersei find Jaime. She's basically super horny and will not take no for an answer. She forces herself upon Jaime, who does stop resisting pretty quickly. But it could be significant that he was vocally uninterested to begin with. This scene draws eerie parallels to a disturbing scene from the books involving the Mad King Ares. We learn about it in A Feast for Crows in Jamie's second chapter as he reflects on Cersei burning the Tower of the Hand. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently on the night of Tommen's wedding, when she burned the Tower of the Hand. The green light of the wildfire had bathed the faces of the Watchers, so they looked like nothing so much as rotting corpses a pack of gleeful ghouls, but some of the corpses were prettier than others. Even in the baleful glow, Cersei had been beautiful to look upon. She had stood with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She's crying, Jamie had realized, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. The sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Ares Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. A king has no secrets from his king's guard. Relations between Ares and his queen had been strained during the last years of his reign. They slept apart and did their best to avoid each other during the waking hours. But whenever Ares gave a man to the flames, Queen Rhaella would have a visitor in the night. The day he burned his mason dagger hand, Jamie and John Derry had stood at guard outside her bedchamber whilst the king took his pleasure. You're hurting me, they had heard Rhaella cry through the oaken door. You're hurting me. In some queer way, that had been worse than Lord Chelstead's screaming. We are sworn to protect her as well, Jamie had finally been driven to say. We are, Derry allowed, but not from him. Jamie had only seen Rayella once after that, the morning of the day she left for Dragonstone. 
The queen had been cloaked and hooded as she climbed inside the royal wheelhouse that would take her down Aegon's high hill to the waiting ship, but he heard her maids whispering after she was gone. They said the queen looked as if some beast had savaged her, clawing at her thighs and chewing on her breasts. A crowned beast, Jamie knew. So there are definitely some disturbing parallels going on here between Cersei and the Mad King. Cersei seems well on track to becoming the Mad Queen. And the fact that Jaime had initially refused Cersei's advances leads us to our next book crossover. Jaime falling out of love with Cersei. So in the books at this point, Jaime is certainly in a different headspace than he is on the TV show. But we're starting to see it creep in on the show. Him refusing Cersei in that moment. And then his reactions as Olena before she dies by poison, the way that she talks about Cersei to Jaime, saying that she's a plague or a disease, that she's a horrible person and she's going to bring Jaime down with her, with, yeah, with her. Um, It's all hinting to the idea that Jaime is going to fall out of love with Cersei, which is exactly what seems to be happening happening in the books as part of his redemption arc. You know, Jamie starts off as such a terrible person, pushing a little kid out a window and whatnot. And slowly we learn that he's actually an honorable man in his own way. In the bathhouse scene with Brienne, he tells her about how he saved King's Landing from the wildfire attacks of Mad Ares. And his rejection of the maniac Cersei is sort of another element that is redemptive to Jamie's character and pushes him along a path of honor. Other factors in his redemptive arc are the fact that he gives Brienne of Tarth the sword made from Ned Stark's Sword Ice, Oathkeeper, and encourages her to fulfill her oath to Catelyn Stark. And then the, the way that Jaime diplomatically handles other situations with honor also leads towards his uh, redemptive arc as well. Another little cool book crossover was when Danny tells Jon about his ancestor Torrin Stark bending the knee to Aegon the Conqueror. As you guys know, I mentioned that a few weeks ago, and I posted on our Game of Microphones page some information about Torrin Stark and where this happened and how it's significant to the story nowadays. But basically, Torrin Stark was the king in the north at the time of Aegon's conquest, and after seeing the way that Harren the Black was defeated in the field at the, um, at the Fields of Fire and the way Hall was melted by dragons, Torrin Stark basically decided to save his people, the Northmen, by bending the knee to Aegon the Conqueror. He lost a kingship, but his people survived to fight another day. And at the place where this infamous knee-bending occurred, today there stands an inn known as the Inn of the Kneeling Man, which is on the Red Fork of the Trident River, which is along the Southern Fork, basically. Our next cool book crossovers are the parallels between Jon Snow and Rhaegar Targaryen. We learned from Barristan Selmy a couple seasons back that Rhaegar never liked killing, but he loved singing. And we learned this episode that Jon Snow does not like doing what he does best, which is probably killing and fighting and warring in general. But book readers know from more information, various quotes about Rhaegar, that he was kind of a melancholy dude, sort of like Jon, and that he was more into reading books than he was into fighting when he was younger. Um, He was obsessed with the prince that was promised prophecy and eventually became a warrior because he felt like he needed to as part of this prophecy. But we know a good amount about John at this point, and there's a pretty good record of the the kind of person that Rhaegar was. 
Jorah Mormont describes him saying, Rhaegar fought valiantly, Rhaegar fought nobly, Rhaegar fought honorably, and Rhaegar died. So there's Jorah saying that Rhaegar was valiant, noble, and honorable. Those are all traits that we know very well John, well, John Snow possesses as well. Even Cersei Lannister compliments Rhaegar repeatedly, saying, Had any man ever been so beautiful? Which is funny because, <laughs> who was it, Tormund, that says that John is prettier than any of his daughters. So there's another parallel there. Even the Honorable Ned Stark whose sister Rhaegar allegedly and in you know in popular opinion had kidnapped and raped even throughout all the Ned Stark chapters in a Game of Thrones Ned never has a negative thought about Rhaegar it, at one point there's a quote from the book that says for the first time in years he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen he wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels somehow he thought not another parallel with John who we learns who we learn at one point refuses to go to brothels and partake with the uh, in the the joys to be found there because as a bastard he doesn't want to subject any future child to having that that style of life he doesn't want to create any more snows it's uh, an honorable trait in john that apparently seems to mirror Rhaegar, his father so we're starting to see a lot of parallels forming between John and Rhaegar, and little hints everywhere that, that John is in fact a Targaryen. As they're walking up the ramp, bridge, walkway thing to Dragonstone, John says, I'm not a stock. And right then a dragon flies overhead, hinting at his Targaryen lineage. Um, Daenerys also says at one point that she's the last, the last Targaryen but we all know that's not true because John's in the same room. <laughs> so it, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it ends up being revealed to John that he's a Targaryen. Bran had said that, you know, he had to talk to John when he was talking with Sansa and John was mentioned. And the fact that he's with Mira Reed provides another element of solidifying the truth to John. He could tell John that he's a Targaryen and John might not believe it or there could, there's room for debate. But if Mira Reed's father, Howland Reed, shows up at some point and testifies that he was at the Tower of Joy, he knows that Lyanna is John's mother and that Rhaegar was his father, that could carry some serious weight. People even speculate that learning this may, may really upset John, that he could turn against Ned Stark, mad that he lied to him for his entire life about his heritage, it could turn John dark side. We could see John becoming the bad guy here, which would be pretty, a pretty interesting dynamic change for the TV show. Here's a cool quote from an article I found that highlights another parallel between John and Rhaegar. As one Redditor spotted, the first came from John's hype man, Sir Davos, who told Daenerys that John has gained support from the North not for his name or lineage, but for the devotion and faith he's inspired in others. Quote, all those hard sons of bitches chose him as their leader because they believe in him, Davos says. That line sounds a lot like a piece of dialogue Sir Barristan Selmy once said about Rhaegar Targaryen back in season three when consulting Danny about purchasing the Unsullied. Quote, when your brother Rhaegar led his army into battle at the Trident, Selmy says in season three, episode three, men died for him because they believed in him, because they loved him. So Rhaegar and Jon seem like pretty similar guys really they're both loved and respected they're both honorable 
they they're both melancholy and and brooding uh it's pretty cool it's gonna be fun to see this play out and to see uh john's reaction and Daenerys' reaction um, when she learns that john is is her her nephew looking forward to this season very much our next cool book crossover are hints to a popular book theory which is the Bran is all Brandon's theory. <laughs> Basically, there's there's a pretty popular theory out there that somehow due to his connection with the Weirwood trees that Bran Stark is actually all the Brandon Starks that have ever been. That Bran built the wall back in the day, that he built Winterfell, built Storm's End, that he was Brandon the burner, burner the guy who burned all the ships, and Brandon the builder, and that he is all these guys that he somehow is traveling through time through the Weirwood network and existing in all these different time periods simultaneously and separately and however you want to think about that in uh, in all its confusing glory. So during this episode, Bran told Sansa that he is the Three-Eyed Raven. And then he also tells her that the Three-Eyed Raven taught him everything he knows. And she says, I thought you were the Three-Eyed Raven. He says, I told you, it's difficult to explain. Well, if it's just a title that's passed down from one three-eyed raven to another three-eyed raven, it's not that difficult to explain. He could have just said it's a title. But if it's also Bran in the tree at a later point in his life after traveling, traveling backwards through time, then it does become a little bit more difficult to explain. So I compiled some quotes from the books for you guys to uh, sort of illuminate the evidence for this theory and why people have speculated this. First quote comes from A Game of Thrones, chapter 24, Bran's fourth chapter. I could tell you the story about Brandon the Builder, Old Nan said. That was always your favorite. Thousands and thousands of years ago, Brandon the Builder had raised Winterfell, and some said the wall. Bran knew the story, but it had never been his favorite. Maybe one of the other Brandons had liked that story. Sometimes Nan would talk to him as if he were her Brandon the baby she had nursed all those years ago, and sometimes she confused him with his uncle Brandon, who was killed by the Mad King before Bran was even born. She had lived so long, Mother had told, had told him once, that all the Brandon Starks had become one person in her head. So that's a pretty interesting quote. All the Brandon Starks being one person. Maybe Bran is all those Brandon Starks. Another little interesting passage talks about how Bran knows more about Winterfell even at seven years old than anybody else. It's from A Game of Thrones, Chapter 8, Bran 2. To a boy, Winterfell was a gray stone labyrinth of walls and towers and courtyards and tunnels spreading out in all directions. In the older parts of the castle, the halls slanted up and down so that you couldn't even be sure what floor you were on. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous, monstrous stone tree, Maester Lewin told him once. Its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted, its roots sunk deep into the earth. When he got out from under it and scrambled up near the sky, Bran could see all of Winterfell at a glance. He liked the way it looked, spread out beneath him, only birds wheeling over his head while all the life of the castle went on below. Bran could perch for hours among the shapeless, rain-worn gargoyles that brooded over the first keep, watching it all. The men drilling with wood and steel in the yard, the cooks tending their vegetables in the glass garden— Restless dogs running back and forth in the kennels, the silence of the godswood, the girls gossiping beside the, wa the washing well. 
It made him feel like he was lord of the castle, in a way even Rob would never know. It taught him Winterfell's secrets, too. The builders had not even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys beneath, behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. Bran knew about that. And he knew you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, and then come out on the ground level at the north gate, with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. Even Maester Lewin didn't know about that, Bran was convinced. So Bran seems to know this castle very, very well. In Game of Thrones chapter 14, Catelyn 3, it says, The boy had always been sure-handed in the past, Maester Lewin said thoughtfully. He knew every stone in Winterfell. So Bran would know every stone in Winterfell if he had placed every stone in Winterfell as Brandon the Builder. (laughs) Just subtle little hints like that. We are also told that a child instructed this guy Durin in the building of Storm's End, which is the Baratheon house seat. In A Clash of Kings, chapter 31, Caitlin 3, it says, Five more castles he built, each larger and stronger than the last, only to see them smashed asunder when the gale winds came howling up Shipbreaker Bay, driving great walls of water before them. His lords pleaded with him to build inland, his priests told him he must placate the gods by giving Elenai back to the sea. Even his small folk begged him to relent. Durin would have none of it. A seventh castle he raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed that a small boy had told him what he must do, a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. No matter how the tale was told, the end was the same. Though the angry gods threw storm after storm against it, the seventh castle stood defiant, and Durin God's grief and fair Elenai dwelt there together until the end of their days. If Storm's End was built with magic, magic that came from the children of the forest, Bran would have access to these magics, all those magics needed for the construction of the wall and Storm's End, etc., as we find out in A Dance with Dragons, chapter 34, brand 3, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, says, said Jojen. The man who never reads only lives one. The singers of the forest had no books, no ink, no parchment, no written language. Instead, they had the trees and the werewoods above all. When they died, they went into the wood, into leaf and limb and root, and the trees remembered. All their songs and spells, their histories and prayers, everything they knew about the world. Maesters will tell you that the werewoods are sacred to the old gods. The singers believe they are the old gods. When singers die, they become part of that godhood. So now since Bran is tapped into this werewood network, he would have access to all these these spells and magic things, you know, that the uh, that the children of the forest we're practicing back in the day all this all this sacred knowledge would now be in Bran's head if these people and entities were in fact assimilated into the werewood network upon death so this story with Durin God's grief building the the Storm's End castle with the help of magic from the children of the forest at the instruction of a small boy makes perfect sense if that small boy is Bran Stark who would later be Bran the Builder, and he's informing Durin, God's Grief, how to use magic 
that he learned from the Werewood Network, magic from the children of the forest. In A Game of Thrones, Ned tells Arya that Bran may one day build castles like Bran the Builder or sail the Sunset Sea, without explicitly mentioning that Brandon Stark the shipwright had sailed the Sunset Sea. In A Game of Thrones, Chapter 25, Eddard 5. No, Ned said. He saw no use in lying to her. Yet some day he may be the lord of a great holdfast and sit on the king's council. He might raise castles like Brandon the Builder, or sail a ship across the Sunset Sea, or enter your mother's faith and become the High Septon. But he will never run beside his wolf again, he thought with a sadness too deep for words, or lie with a woman, or hold his own son in his arms. So there we have Ned saying that Brandon or Bran may do these things that are attributed to other great Brandon Starks. Just all little hint, hints that Bran has an important future, that he's going to be uh, doing something on a massive scale, something cool, something unique. In last week's episode, Bran was having a vision as he approached the wall. And the interesting thing about this was that he wasn't t- even touching any werewoods. Yet he's having a vision of the White Walkers traveling south. Interestingly, there's this thing that's going on in the books where while Bran is inside the cave, he's being fed this paste that the fan base refers to as Jojen paste. And it's speculated that Bran is essentially, without knowing it, cannibalizing the body of Jojen, that they're feeding Bran Jojen mixed up in this paste combined with werewood roots and whatnot. But given the context of last week's episode where he's having visions without touching any weirwood trees, this paste may have a different significance. Maybe if Bran has been ingesting weirwood, it's possible that he doesn't need to touch the weirwood trees because now he has weirwood built into his, his, his own physiology, that there's weirwood roots inside his blood inside his his body that he can tap into so he can access this network from anywhere which is a pretty cool uh, pretty cool idea in a dance with dragons chapter 34 brand 3 it says the singers carved eyes into their heart trees to awaken them and those are the first eyes a new green seer learns to use but in time you will see well beyond the trees themselves this refers to the three-eyed raven being able to look through the eyes of other animals and whatnot. A thousand eyes and one, they said about blood raven in the book. But perhaps it also references Bran's ability to access the network from anywhere beyond the trees themselves. So that's pretty cool. There are other hints of Bran being eternal, um, like when Theon seems to see his face carved in the weirwood tree in Winterfell. And that's significant because these faces have been carved there for thousands of years. The weirwood trees live basically forever. So they're sort of like these eternal beings. And seeing Bran's face on one may have implications towards that uh, direction for him. So in A Dance with Dragons, chapter 46, The Ghost in Winterfell, it says this. The night was windless, the snow drifting straight down out of a cold black sky. Yet the leaves of the heart tree were rustling his name. Theon, they seemed to whisper. Theon. The old gods, he thought. They know me. They know my name. I was Theon of House Greyjoy. I was ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees. A sword, that's all I ask. 
Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. Tears trickled down his cheeks, impossibly warm. I was ironborn, a son, a son of Pike, of the islands. A leaf drifted down from above, brushed his brow, and landed in the pool. It floated on the, on the water, red, five-fingered, like a bloody hand. Bran, the tree murmured. They know, the gods know, they saw what I did, and for one strange moment it seemed as if it were Bran's face carved into the pale trunk of the werewood, staring down at him with eyes red and wise and sad. Bran's ghost, he thought, but that was madness. Why should Bran want to haunt him? He had been fond of the boy, had never done him any harm. It was not Bran we killed, it was not Rickon. They were only Miller's sons from the mill by the acorn water. I had to have two heads, else they would have mocked me, laughed at me. They, a voice said, who are you talking to? Theon spun, terrified that Ramsay had found him, but it was just the washerwomen, Holly, Rowan, and one whose name he did not know. The ghosts, he blurted, they whispered to me, they, they know my name. So there we have Theon seeing Bran's face in the place of this otherwise eternal being, this tree which is pretty neat. So there are lots of hints that this could be a reality. And Bran did not do anything to detract from those this episode by saying that he both was taught by and is the Three-Eyed Raven himself. Our next interesting book crossover, or potential book crossover in this case, is the fact that Olena admits to Jamie that she was the one that killed Joffrey before she dies. Now this would be particularly interesting to me if it happened in the books, because Jamie at this point is actually under the impression that Tyrion did kill Joffrey. As you guys remember, when Jamie frees Tyrion from his cell after he's imprisoned following, you know, during his trial, Jamie admits to Tyrion, he frees him and says, you know, Lannister pays his debts and and Tyrion says, "What debts? So you don't owe me anything." To which Jamie answers that he basically has been living a lie and that Tyrion's first wife, Tysha, was never the whore that he claimed he had, she had been. This drives, this drives Tyrion crazy and makes him fly off the handle, at which point he falsely admits to murdering Joffrey. You know, he calls Joffrey Jamie's vile bastard or something like that and gloats about having murdered him, which isn't even the case. So in the books, Jamie is really really fucking pissed at Tyrion basically and Tyrion is also really pissed at Jamie for lying to him about his first wife Tysha. So it would be very interesting to see how Jamie learning this would affect the dynamic or the potential dynamic of a reunion between Jamie and Tyrion. It would at least give the potential for Jamie to want to extend an olive branch and and reconcile with Tyrion, which I'm hoping happens. And the potential of a reconcile would give Jamie an out in having to deal with Cersei. You know, as we mentioned beforehand in the books, Jamie is obviously less into Cersei. He seems to have fallen out of love with her quite a bit. He sees the Mad King in her and her potential for madness after her, you know, after her incidents with fire and the way she behaves and everything so it could lead to in the books Jamie abandoning Cersei and trying to team up with Tyrion who's always 
had a fondness for, <laughs> which would be a nice reunion and a good step towards redemption for, for Jamie as well. And the last thing that I wanted to talk about isn't really a book crossover, but it's just something that I found interesting about this. And it's the irony of the downfall of House Tyrell. So Cersei obviously is behind the downfall of this entire house. She armed the Faith Militant, got Sir Loras locked up, got Marjorie locked up, had basically which resulted in their their deaths as she blew up the, the Sept of Baelor. She now has invaded High Garden and has Jaime poisoned Lady Elena. And this is all because of Cersei's obs- obsession with the prophecy of Maggie the Frog, who told her that you know, she would have three children, gold will be their crowns, gold will be their shrouds, a younger, more beautiful queen will come and take everything that you hold dear, seizing power, and her threat or her prophecy of the Valonqar strangling the life out of her. So basically, Cersei's been obsessed with this prophecy and her interpretation had placed Queen Marjorie in the role of the younger, more beautiful queen. So because of this, Cersei has had sort of an obsession with derailing Marjorie and weakening and destroying House Tyrell, which is a really, really bad strategic move on her part. Tywin had even said that they needed the Tyrells as an ally. Tyrells have money, they have food, they're they're respected and, and loved. A, a Tyrell-Lannister alliance would be a very, very powerful force to overcome. So if Cersei hadn't been obsessed with this prophecy, she could have married Joffrey or Tommen to Marjorie and created a monstrous, powerful alliance between these families that would have resulted in a dynasty that could have lasted a thousand years, as she mentioned in the last episode and as Tywin had mentioned to Jamie the first time we saw Tywin on screen, when he's butchering that deer and Jamie comes in to talk to him on the field of battle and and he's talking about how Jamie needs to become the man that he's supposed he's destined to be and that they can form a dynasty, a dynasty to last a thousand years. So instead, nope, Cersei has, has destroyed a powerful potential ally for no reason and strengthened her enemy Daenerys by causing Tyrion to flee and end up on Daenerys' side. So basically, I think it's pretty poetic and interesting that Cersei has spent so much time obsessed with this prophecy, but all she's done is basically create a self-fulfilling prophecy by weakening her own strength and eliminating potentially powerful alliances that could have helped her while paving the way for a younger, beautiful queen, Daenerys, to come through and take over everything and making her even stronger by alienating her brother, who she believed to be the Valonqar, who is destined to murder her. She jailed him, convinced that he murdered her son, Joffrey, when it was in fact Olena Tyrell, and created an even more strong enemy by turning Tyrion completely against her. So just pretty, pretty ridiculous that Cersei has done this and put herself in this horrible position. I mean, right now, with Euron destroying the uh, the fleets that were under Daenerys's control and everything like that it's pretty bad news for Daenerys but I don't think any of us expect Daenerys to end up losing to Cersei that would be an interesting twist if Cersei (laughs) won the war of of the kings and queens basically and ended up on top that would be a pretty shocking twist I've heard speculation that 
you know, people have said that most of the people that John has kneeled to have ended up dying. So if for some reason he kneeled to Daenerys, whether to offer fealty or whether as a suitor, it could result in Danny dying. And if Cersei took over, that would be pretty ridiculous. But I wouldn't put it past George R. Martin. George R. R. Martin. Anyway, that's it for today's Still Smug Book Talk. I hope you guys enjoyed learning some details from the books. This is Sir Duncan signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Mogulis. <laughs>